Lord, each one of us are here for different reasons. We have found ourselves here in some way or another. Some are like me. They simply come out of habit. But there are collective reasons why we are here. We are here because we are in need. We are desperate in our needs. We are here because it seems that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we work, no matter what we do, we must confess like we did just a moment ago that we are broken. So we are here because we are broken. But Lord, we are also here because we know that you do not just welcome us in the good times and at the high points. But you actually meet us in our need and that you were a God that suffers alongside us. In freedom and in love, you identify with us. And you did so by the giving of your son. So we come with that story in mind because we are open. We are open to your healing work. We are open to what you want to do in us. We are open to the idea that perhaps love can conquer death. And that maybe, just maybe, resurrection is more powerful than death. We come here because we have hope that this is indeed true for us and for those who sit around us, for the neighbors that we know, and those who we do not. So, as needy and broken, people who are open with hope, we come to you. May the good news just come down on us like rain. Soak us to the very, to the very uh, depths of who we are. And bring us to a place by which we have an assurance of your healing work in our lives. This is what we pray, and we pray it together in the strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Good evening. My name is Mikhail, and I also get to serve as one of the pastors here. But I am here because I found some good neighbors. And that's really true. It's not just what I'm preaching about, but it's nice when the thing that you say is also what you get to preach about. So uh, we have ushers in the back that have Bibles for you. If anyone wants to read with pages, old-fashioned way, I invite you to reach up a hand. You can grab a Bible. We have Bibles in Spanish also for anyone whose heart language is in Spanish or practicing their Spanish. Um, And we will be reading together in John chapter 13. So once you've uh, found something to read from, uh, I invite you to turn there, or you can always follow along on the wall as well. But would you stand with me as we read together from John chapter 13? Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. 
When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over doesn't need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And this is the word of God for us, the people of God. So we say together, thanks be to God, and you may have a seat. So we are in a sermon series going kind of, not necessarily line by line, but theme by theme through the responsive reading we read together earlier. So we've talked about our confession that we don't have our lives together and that we need God and we need one another. And last week we talked about what it means that God died in solidarity with us so that you and I are now forgiven, set free, adopted, and belonging to a good family. And today we're talking about the part where we chime in. Because Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we will be good neighbors to one another. So I want to ask you, who comes to mind when you think of a good neighbor? And it's really okay that the answer is not Jesus, okay? Because here's some people that come to mind when I think of a good neighbor. I think of next-door neighbors, like Daniel and Jody. And these kinds of neighbors are the ones who are kind to one another. Sometimes they know some odd things about one another. And in the occasion of this other next-door neighbor couple, Tim Taylor and Wilson, often share very deep life lessons with one another across the fence. Then you might think about neighborhood neighbors... These are the neighbors who live in proximity with one another, but maybe not right next door, and they, they show up for one another. They recognize and celebrate each other's quirks and differences as they spend time in each other's spaces like these guys do. And then there's the kind of neighbors who are just a little bit different. These are the neighbors who are thrown together by life circumstances... <laughs> Thank you, Tanner. That was, um, I, it was for you. <laughs> so these kind of neighbors, you know, they have each other's backs in very literal ways. They may squabble on occasion, but they share a single-minded purpose to defeat evil. And these guys, the other ones, are pretty good at it too. So I love 
all of these neighbors, actually, maybe the last ones in particular. But these are not the ones that come to my mind when I think of good neighbors. You want to know who I think of when I think of good neighbors? I think of you. I think of an eighth grade boy who organized a game day for his church to help raise money for refugees who had been resettled to a city. I think of a teacher who believes so greatly in her students that she rallied a team of friends and pastors to help find a lawyer for a young man while he was incarcerated and has since helped him land a stable job when he was released. I think of adults who give themselves to invest an invaluable amount of time to the smallest and most vulnerable kids around us, like friends who commit themselves to help a single mom of six raise awesome kids in the way of Jesus. And this is what I think about when I think about good neighbors. These stories of our community are literally just the tip of the iceberg. I started writing stories and I was like, well, we could be here for two weeks. This could be the longest sermon I've ever preached. I can't adequately express to you how grateful I am, how proud I am to be your pastor. Chris has talked about the last couple of weeks as what the process was like as we wrote the responsive reading that we say together every week. We started that process over four years ago, believe it or not. And when we began writing those words, I could never have imagined how seriously you would take them some of whom I knew at that point, but many of whom I didn't even know existed. How seriously you would take these words and how eagerly you would put them into action, ready to embody the dreams of being good neighbors to one another. So let me just tell you right from the get-go that this sermon is not a how-to sermon or a a do-a-better-job sermon because you certainly know And you do a great job at being good neighbors. But when I started to pray and think about what I wanted for you, my my greatest desire is actually not that you are good neighbors. My greatest desire is that you know and experience Jesus as our very best neighbor. And if that surprises you at all, you're in really good company. In the text that we read together in John chapter 13, Jesus' closest friends, after three years of doing life with him, were shocked and somewhat appalled by his own display of neighborliness. Now, mind you, they had no idea of what was yet to come. They were going to be even more shocked, more shocked and appalled in just a few hours. But I can't honestly blame them for their response. Jesus is acting rather irrationally, to be honest. If, if there were going to be feet washed at all, which was a very common practice, it should have happened right when they came into the house. But here they were, relaxing around dinner, about to eat together, and Jesus gets up, undresses, and begins 
washing feet. People with any means at all in that day would have had a servant or the lowest ranking member of the household, sometimes a child, to wash the feet of guests. And here Jesus was, the person of highest ranking in the house and, in fact, in the cosmos, taking it upon himself to attend to their feet. Calluses, discolored toenails, stench, and all. And this wasn't just like a pampering pre-pedicure foot bath. You know, in the days before indoor plumbing, in the days of dirt roads and animal transportation, sandaled feet would have received a lot of things on them. And so it's no wonder that Peter recoils. I'm guessing that any of us in this room would have done the same thing. But Jesus' words to Peter should stop us in our tracks when he says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. That's, a, that's kind of a hard thing to say. And do you really think that there would be such dire consequences for sitting at the table with dirty feet? I, I don't think that's what this is about. I don't think it's about cleanliness that Jesus is so adamant about. But I understand the protest because we seem to think that Jesus only cares about what we do for God or for other people. And for us, many times the holiest prayers that we know how to pray are about how best we are to serve other people, right? Which is not bad at all. But somehow Jesus tells all of us Peters, that unless you allow me to serve you, you can't expect to join me in serving other people. We would rather stay in the driver's seat, I think. I think we would rather be in the place of control and the place of action more than in the place of passively receiving another's action. I think we generally rather think about other people's needs instead of our own because thinking about our own needs, our own weaknesses, our own limitations, our own pain, our own, it is kind of icky. And we'd rather Jesus ignore those embarrassing and shameful and ugly and unfixable places in our lives like we have learned to do. But Jesus... He doesn't behave like we think he should. And we may think that this whole receiving Jesus, the washing of feet, the, the, the letting Jesus care for us, yeah, okay, maybe that's really good for the especially needy people. We all need to, you know, others need that part. But if I don't really need anything, Jesus, isn't this just kind of, a waste of time and energy? <laughs> Shouldn't this be better applied to someone else? Someone who's worse off than me? Someone that I can go help you fix too? And I will be honest, there have been times when I have said these things. There have been times when I have attempted to mom this way or 
pastor this way, when I have attempted to serve without giving Jesus time to serve me first. And there are even times when I have tried to help the brokenness of others to escape my own brokenness. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't let this last very long. Sometimes it comes to an end when I realize I'm doing more harm than good, because that's a reality. But often it comes to an end when I actually give Jesus just enough time to sit in silence, where he taps me on the shoulder and says, can we talk about this? He touches the place of pain or the brokenness or the mess I've created. And, and it's, like he, it's like he shows up with a towel and a bowl of water. It's like he kneels down and wants to wash my feet. And every time this happens, friends, It's not that I emerge from this experience feeling cleaner, necessarily. It's more akin to that experience when one of your friends rushes in to do something for you that you were totally overwhelmed by. You didn't know how you were going to do it, and somehow it's done for you. I recently had a conversation with a friend who experienced the love of God through friends who showed up to help scrub down and bleach out her house after a long-term partner had left in a wake of chaos. And in this very tangible and menial act of service, she experienced Jesus' care. And I've experienced Jesus' care like that. It's an experience that I think leaves us feeling not just happy, but also like lighter and hopeful. It's an experience that gives us freedom. It's an experience that reminds us that, yes, indeed, you are very loved. And it's because of this way that Jesus has acted toward us that we call him the very best neighbor. And he invites us to receive a whole new way of self-sacrificing, neighborly love and care that we can't compare to anything else, that we certainly can't duplicate or replicate on our own in any way. Because something happens to me and happens to us when we experience something this good. And so when Jesus then says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I think it's really important that we hear the order that this goes in. None of us is being invited into serving others or into some kind of neighborly, sacrificial behavior as a new kind of moralism or legalism. It's not like the rules have changed and now all of a sudden the new rule in place is to behave this way towards people. 
That's not the rule that we're keeping. And I even think that sometimes we might not fully hear the words that we say even in our responsive reading. Because when we say, because Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we will be neighbors to one another. What do we mean by because? Are we saying we have an obligation? Because Jesus has been the very best neighbor, it's our duty to be good neighbors to one another? Well, I will tell you from this author's intent, no. (laughs) No. We're saying because Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, there is a cause and effect. It is a causational because, not an obligatory because for any English teachers. We could even say because Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us, we are becoming good neighbors to one another. We are being formed into good neighbors to one another. Because when we experience Jesus as our very best neighbor, when we experience the one who has died in solidarity with us and brought us into resurrection life so that now you and I are forgiven and set free and adopted into a good family, when we experience Jesus, the very best neighbor, who says that you and I are not alone, that we belong to God and to one another, when we experience that we are indeed God's people, people who are rich, people who are satisfied, a people of peace and reconciliation and love, when we really experience and receive the very best neighbor's gifts to us. Friends, we will be good neighbors. Not because we try hard, not because we have to work our way into it, but because this also is one of the gifts of the very best neighbor. One of the things that our very best neighbor does for us is that he shares his neighborliness with us so that we can become like him. You know, there's an old-fashioned word to talk about this. It's called holiness. It's this thing about God sharing with us that one quality and essence that only God possesses. It's becoming a truly good Jesus-style kind of neighbor is absolutely nothing short of transforming us into holy people who act more and more like our holy God. And when this happens, watch out. Because when people experience this, they start acting as irrationally as Jesus did at the dinner table. They start behaving in over-the-top, generous ways, not as a way to manipulate people into changing their mind, but as a way to love them without expecting anything back. And then they start doing good things indiscriminately for people, even those who don't look like them or think like them or act like them, even the ones who are about to double-cross them like Judas at Jesus' table sitting there letting his feet get washed. 
And when this happens, people give things away. All kinds of things. They give away property. They give away power, if you could imagine that. They give away their own privilege. They give away love without any strings attached. And it is truly amazing to witness this among a congregation of people who may not be the same, but who rally under the name of Jesus Christ. But you know what is even, well, I don't know if it's more amazing, but it is a different kind of amazing. It gets crazy. (laughs) When these Jesus neighbor people don't just do these things for people they know, they begin to do these things for everyone. Because somehow Jesus, the very best neighbor, has shared with them the way that he sees everyone. And all of a sudden, each person is indescribably valuable and worthy of life. And each person is as precious to us as they are to God. And now... All of a sudden, the world is full of neighbors, and we can't find a single person who isn't our neighbor. And when that happens, slavery matters to people who weren't slaves, and immigration matters to people who aren't migrants. And parents find themselves weeping over the death of children that are not their own and protesting the treatment of other people's kids. And when this happens, people share homes with those who are in danger, even risking their own lives. People who have experienced Jesus as the very best neighbor and who have actually become good neighbors, well, these people have literally changed the world. Because these are the people who have funded hospitals for the poor and have created orphanages for abandoned children. It's these ones who have cared for the dying and have gathered up mentally disabled people who have been abandoned by their families and gathered them to communities and given them homes. These are the ones who have stood up to governments and superpowers, not on their own interests, but to advocate for the poor and the very young and the very old and the foreigners and the imprisoned and the oppressed. So I don't think it's any exaggeration at all to say that becoming a good neighbor in the way of Jesus is nothing short of an invitation to participate in the remaking of the world. And in this, we are invited to join the very life, the very mission of the triune God. What the Father, Son, and Spirit are all about. But before any of that happens, before we start remaking the world with God, he asks us if we will allow him to remake us. There's a story of neighborliness that I witnessed a few weeks ago that has not gotten away from me. It's a story that happened in this very room And I was so taken by it that I had to snap a picture. So it's really not very good quality. But 
If you notice what you're looking at here, um, these legs with the skinned knee um, on the right is my son, Austin. Yes, that's you. And his friend tying his shoe with the lovely polka dots and ponytail is Helena, which is you. And what you might not recognize here um, is, so I, actually, I'll just show you what I, what I recognize. This was after worship a couple of weeks ago. And Austin, in his usual form, was running around the church, having a lot of fun. And his shoe came untied in the process. And his friend, Helena, noticed. And somehow, Helena did what I'm never able to do, and she got him to stop running. (laughs) And she said, let me tie your shoe. So she knelt down, and she very carefully made one bunny ear, two bunny ears, crisscrossed and pulled it through. Now, I don't know if Austin knew or really was bothered by the fact that his shoelace came untied. I mean, I know that it's dangerous to run around with an untied shoelace, but what time does a little boy have to think about those things? Who cares? But Helena noticed, and she offered to do something about it. I think what is most remarkable to me, though, is that Helena knew how to tie Austin's shoe and knew that it was a good thing to do because Angie's been tying Helena's shoes for her whole life until probably very recently when Helena learned to tie her own. We could say that because Angie had been the very best shoe tire for Helena. Helena is now a good shoe tire for us all. I don't think it happens any other way, friends. We can only extend as much as we have allowed it to extend to us. We can only give as much as we have allowed ourselves to receive. And so in just a moment, we will have an opportunity to receive. We'll be invited to the table together and literally receive the gift of Jesus, our very best neighbor. But I wanted to give us a few minutes to reflect, to pray, to ponder about what it means for us to receive like this. And so as our servers come to prepare, as music is played, you'll see some questions on the wall. Parents, feel free to talk about these things with your kids. Adults, feel free to talk about these things with Jesus with your neighbor, with yourself. And let's prepare our hearts, our minds to receive.